Today's scripture reading is Galatians 3, 15-22. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, I'm using a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to a validated human will. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. My point is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate, invalidate a covenant previously established by God, and thus cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on the promise. But God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. Why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. Is the law therefore contrary to, the, to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power, so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Merciful Father, great God and King, he who is faithful, he who is merciful, he who created all things, he who is the giver of all things, he who is the giver of life, he who is unchangeable, he who is perfect in all of his ways, he who made the stars and the heavens and the oceans and his depths, he who knows the very number of hairs on our head, he who has numbered our days, he who has redeemed and who is redeeming all things in Christ Jesus, he who became flesh and dwelt amongst us. We sit in your presence, I preach in your presence, we live in your presence in need of you, in need of your life-giving spirit, in need of you to open our eyes and the eyes of our hearts, in need of you to crush our pride, at the same time revive us to humility in you. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. There is a quick diagram I want to work through with you as we continue this uh, wonderful book, the book of Galatians. And in the middle of this diagram, we're going to put the uh, word child of God. And right above that, as we start this diagram, it's going to kind of reflect my reality. I'm going to put the word, words father and husband. And before that, above that, we're going to put the word Pastor. Now, the reality of life is, for me and for you, is that 
our peace of mind, our joy, our hope, uh, our balance in life is really dependent upon um, which way we live. Are we living from the inside out or the outside in? So for me, living from the outside in, which can happen at any moment and happen at any day and happens more than I, I want it to happen, is for me to find my identity, not first and foremost in the fact that I am God's child, but in a, a, subs, a, 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 less, uh, a lesser identity, a secondary identity. And that could be as a pastor. Me finding my identity as a pastor can be me allowing uh, the way in which I view myself, the way in which I view my relationship with my wife or with my kids to first and foremost flow out of how things are going at the church, how things are going with relationships at the church, how things are going with a sermon that I preach, how things are going. And that, if I find my identity of that, will affect how I relate to my wife, how I relate to my kids, and ultimately how I view myself as a child of God. And doing that brings imbalance. Doing that brings a divided soul. And ultimately, when I do that, it, it ends up bringing divisions with those who are around me. There's a second way to live, a way in which God is inviting all of us to live, and that's by me finding my identity first and foremost in the fact that I am a child of God, the fact that God redeemed me, that he saved me, that he set his affections on me, that he sealed me with his spirit, gave me an inheritance that I cannot earn I don't deserve that he loves me. He rejoices over me, regardless of how things are going as a pastor, regardless of how things are going as a father or a husband, that I am first and foremost a child of the king. And when I see myself that way as one who is created in his image, Psalm 139, who is wonderfully and fearfully made by him, one Romans 12, who is uniquely gifted by him. Galatians 3, 25, one who is his child, who has been justified by faith and adopted into his family, then I can live a life of balance and wholeness. And the same is true for you, that balance and wholeness comes when you live from the inside out as a promised child of God. When you find your identity in the fact that God has adopted you into his family, not based upon works of the law, not based upon your ability to perform, but based upon you believing by faith his promises and his declaration over you that he loves you and he cares deeply for you and that he sent his son into this world to die for you and that he not only died for you, but he defeated death for you and he is coming back to redeem you and to make all things right. When we live as his child, not as an adult of God, but as a child of God, as one who is weak and needy, we can experience wholeness. We can experience forgiveness of sin as well as security in him. And so the problem with the church of Galatia is that they, in essence, are living from the outside in. As they have listened to false teachers, troublemakers, who are saying that the way in which one finds their identity, the way in which one is affirmed as a child of God, is not by faith as a result of the grace of God, but it is by performance of the law, is through circumcision, is through uh, specific uh, dietary laws. In essence, it is through 
uh, one's uh, pursuit of, of living according to the Mosaic law, even if you're a Gentile, in a Jewish way. Nothing is wrong with living in a Jewish way. And, and being Jewish is beautiful. God ordained for, for Jews to pursue life with him under the law. But the law was not meant to save. The law was not meant for them to find their identity in that law in themselves or in their, their, their particular culture. The law was meant to do something greater. And that's what we're going to look at today. So in this, today's text, we're going to answer some, some key questions. That, that's a very difficult question, uh, text. It's not an easy text. But in answering these questions, what I, I hope you will see is what Paul wanted uh, these Christians in Galatians to see. It's to see that the law does not nullify God's covenant promises. That the law was not given to supersede the promise that was given to Abraham. What was the promise that was given to Abraham? That God, as a result of his graciousness on Abraham, who was a pagan, who was not a follower of Yahweh, who had no, no, no way to even know Yahweh, that God was gracious to reveal himself to Abraham and to make a promise that through Abraham, the nations would be blessed. He says that those promises that was given to Abraham, which Paul is arguing that is found in Christ Jesus, is not nullified through works of the law, since the law of Moses came after the promises of Abraham. And at its most basic form, the way this translates to us today, as we bridge that gap of 2,000 years, is, is the saying for you and me, that what pleases God, what makes us right with God, what makes us faithful Christians, is not our ability to perform, it's not our ability to find refuge in an identity, but it's our ability to, to rest in this promise-making, promise-keeping God who is more about pursuing your heart and you pursuing his than mere performance. So let's look at this text and first let's answer the question like, what is this covenant promise that God made? Verse 15, brothers and sisters, I'm using a human illustration. So Paul, as he's talking to the church of Galatia, he's laying some thick theology in verse 14. He introduces this idea of the blessings of Abraham, that they would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that they would receive the promised spirit through faith. In verse 15, he says, let me make an illustration to you as you all are magnifying the law. As you, uh, Galatian church, are, are telling Gentile Christians that to be made right with God is for them, yes, to believe in Jesus Christ, but also for them to uh, obey the law of Moses. And you're believing that because he's saying you, you believe that somehow the law of Abraham was superseded by the Mosaic law. So he says no one sets aside or makes additions to a validated human will. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed who is Christ. So what is he saying? He's saying, listen, God made a promise. God made a covenant with Abraham. And that covenant with Abraham that was made here is a covenant. It cannot just be changed just like a human will. When a human will is made, 
and a person passes and says, this is what I want to happen to all of my belongings, it is not just simply changed because someone doesn't want uh, that, that will to, to go forth. No, it's a covenant. It's set firm. He's saying in the same way when God made a promise with Abraham that if he believed him by faith, that he will receive all an inheritance. God is saying that is not superseded because 430 years later, Moses came with a law to Israel. So he's saying you can't pin the promises of Abraham and the, the promises or the covenant of Moses, the law, uh, against each other. He's saying you, can't, you just can't do that. <laughs> do you remember when God made the promise to Abraham? Genesis chapter 12 Genesis chapter 13, Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 17, Genesis chapter 22. God over and over is coming to Abraham and he's making a promise to a man whose wife is barren that their, uh, their, their seeds will be as, as numerous as the star and that this will be a result of a seed that would be born. And do you remember in Genesis 15, one of the most amazing scenes in all of the scripture. When Jesus, uh, when God has a conversation with Abraham, he says, yo, Abraham, this is not what it says in your translation, but it was kind of how I read it. And he comes to Abraham and he says, listen, I'm going to bless you with an inheritance and with a seed. And he begins to tell Abraham these great promises And Abraham is just like us. He's a human being. Abraham's like, I'm having a hard time believing these promises. I'm barren. My wife is getting older and we still don't have a child. And what God does is is Abraham asks for a sign. God doesn't have to give him a sign. After all, he's God. He's the creator of all things. He could have taken Abraham out, says, I dare you ask me, the creator, to give you a sign. But he doesn't. He graciously says, here's a sign. And he takes animals He takes a goat, he takes a ram, he takes some doves, he splits them in half, he makes a row, he comes back, and the Bible says that Abraham falls into a deep sleep. He falls asleep while God is trying to like give him a sign. Abraham's like, yo, God, give me a sign. God's like, okay, I'm going to make some sacrifice for you. And after he makes the sacrifices, the Bible says Abraham went into a deep sleep. And this is the father of our faith. And the Bible says that God becomes like a fire and he goes in between these pieces. And this is weird to us, but to the people of that day and that culture, they understood what was happening. This was a covenant that was being made. See, people would make sacrifices of animals. They would split them in two. They would line them up. And the two parties will walk in between the pieces. And what they were saying in walking in between the pieces is if I go back on my word, if I do not fulfill what I've promised that I will fulfill, may this happen to me. And I just love Genesis 15 on a number of different levels. The first reason I love it is because God makes a covenant. God makes a covenant. The immutable, unchanging God. The infinite God. The one who cannot lie, the one who cannot sin, the one who cannot make a mistake, the one who cannot die makes a sacrifice as if to say that if I change, though I'm unchangeable, I should die, though I can't die. And then Abraham, when it's his time to make his covenant, he falls asleep and God doesn't wake him up and say, it's your turn to walk in between the pieces. He lets him sleep. Why? Because God's promises to bless 
the nations, to bless the world through a seed is not based upon Abraham's faithfulness. It's not based upon Abraham's ability to perfectly obey. It's not based upon Israel's ability to perfectly obey. God had a plan set in motion from the very beginning. There was a lamb that was slain. There was a multi-ethnic, multicultural people from every nation, tribe, and tongue that was going to worship at the feet of Jesus in Revelation chapter 5. And it's not based upon People's performance or ability or works is based upon their belief in what he has done. And that's why we read in this text, verse 16, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And he does not say to seeds as though referring to many, but referring to one and your seed who is Christ. Paul is helping them to see Jesus all the way back in Genesis. Paul is helping them see that this was all a part of God's plan. And we see all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God promises that a seed will be born. A a child will be born through a woman and he will crush the serpent's head. Jesus is all over the book. Then we see in verse 17, and this was like the highlight of my week. You want to know one of the highlights of my week in reading this text? It was this, verse 17. My point is this. Let me tell y'all what I did when I read that. I stopped. I got up. I did like this. I went and got some coffee. And I came back and put my hands behind my head and said, all right. Because anytime the Apostle Paul is in the middle of a dense argument and he says, my point is this, you know that your sermon is all, your main point is right there. (laughs) It's right there. It's right there. He's like, Jamal, here's a gift to you. My point is this. Up to that point, I'm like, what is the, what's going on? My point is this, and I want to got special children. I need to say, I need that. My point is this. And so God knows, and he says, here it is. The law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. He said, my point is this to you, Galatian church. That the law was not a different way for Israel to receive their inheritance. You all think that the law is going to save you and bring you into all of the promises of God. He says, no, just like Abraham's inheritance was to be received by faith, so is yours. Imagine that I won the mega millions lottery, whatever it's called, all right? And I know I'm a pastor, I'm not supposed to play it. My wife has told me that numerous of times, but just imagine that I did. And it's like, what? I got a one in a billion chance of hitting. If I hit the lottery, that means God redeemed it, right? I'm just joking, just joking. (laughs) But imagine that I won and I came to you and I said, listen, I wanna split my earnings with you, and all you have to do is to believe that I'm going to split it with you. All you have to do is go in the back and get your check. It's all yours. And while you're headed to the back because you you believe it, I pause and I say, nope, change your plans. In order for you to get that check in the back, what I need you to do is every Monday, I need you to come and wash my car. Every Wednesday, I need you to come to my house and cook dinner. 
And every Friday, I need you to come and babysit my kids so I can go out and have a good time. You'll say, wait a minute, brother. Am I to receive this inheritance by believing and walking back there? Or do I receive this inheritance by doing this list of things that you are calling me to do? And in essence, Paul is saying, listen, the promises of God that he has for you, Gentile Christians. You know, those promises he talks about in Ephesians chapter one, those spiritual blessings that are reserved in the heavenly places, that peace that passeth all understanding, that that joy that the world didn't give and the world can't take away. That promise that one day you will be united with Christ and he will wipe away every tear from your eyes. He says all of these promises that are stored up for you and sealed by the Holy Spirit, the way that you receive them is not by your performance and the works of the law, but the way that you receive those promises is by you believing in the God who is the promise maker. It's by you finding your hope, your joy, your life, your identity, and the fact that you are his child. And it's not through circumcision. It's not through dietary laws. It's through you trusting in God's provision and the works of his son. Look at verse 18. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on the promise. That's very clear. But God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. So that's, that's the promise that God makes, that he's going to uh, redeem a people from all nations through the lineage of Abraham, Abraham, through his seed. But what do we do with the law then? And this is Paul teaching. He's getting into the details here because he really wants them to see what's the purpose of the law. And that's the second part. Verse 19, why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. He says the law was given uh, for two reasons. One, to reveal God's heart. Jesus said that all the law can be summed up in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's all the Old Testament laws. All 634 was to teach Israel to love God with everything and to love their neighbor themselves. Now, God gave this particular people some very particular cultural customs to separate them from the world so that the world will look in and say, this is a different people and ask, who are you and why are you? And they can point to Yahweh. But he says, all this can be summed up in this. But the second reason the law is given is to reveal our own sinfulness. It's to reveal our own heart's inclination, our own rebellion, our own lack of ability to perform. <laughs> I was about 16 going on 17. I got my driver's license and my father got a, a new car. I remember it was Christmas time. Dodge came out with something that's called the Dodge Durango. I remember we were watching this commercial as a family, and my father just freaked out. He was like, oh, no, they didn't. Got three rows of seats. It's cool looking. He looked at my mom and was like, we're getting that Durango. And I saw in his eye, we were going to get that Durango. And one day he came home with that Dodge Durango. It was shiny. It was red. It was beautiful. And all I kept thinking is, I'm going to wait till he's in a good mood. I'm going to ask him, can I take that for a drive? Now, me having a new license... There was no way I thought he was going to let me take that with my friends for a drive. But I guess he loved the Durango so much 
It put him in such a good mood, he let me take it. And as I was leaving the house, he said, Jamal, there's only one rule. When you bring this Dodge Durango back at night, make sure you drive into the driveway and don't try to reverse it. This is a big truck. We got a tricky driveway. And if you don't time it perfectly, you're going to scratch up our, my new car. I said, Dad, I got you. But you know, the whole time in the back of my head, I'm thinking, man, I know how to reverse this truck in the driveway. I did it with the car all the time. So I go out with my friends. We have a good time. And that moment of truth comes as I'm getting to the driveway. And I had a little voice tell me, don't drive it in. Prove to him that you can reverse it. Now, I know y'all don't have little voices talking to y'all, but sometimes I do. <laughs> and so I decided to reverse it in. And it was tough. It was hard. But I got it in. I smiled. I went inside. I went to sleep. The next morning, I'm abruptly woken by my father, and I say, something is not right. Takes me downstairs, shows me this long scratch from the front of the door all the way to the back. Now listen. <laughs> I expected my father to scold me, and I thought I was never going to drive his Durango again. And to my surprise, he did not. And I did get to drive it again. But that story reminds me of what Paul is saying here about the law. Isn't it just something on the inside of us? I mean, Paul, Paul even said that the things I want to do, I, I don't do. Things I, I should do, I, I don't do. It, it's just something about being told sometimes. That, that one thing that you, you're not supposed to do, sometimes it just kind of... And the problem isn't that one thing. The problem, Paul is saying, is in us. It reveals that we are imperfect beings, that we are fallen and broken, that we cannot properly perform. And what he's saying is God gave us the law to reveal that so that we would not find salvation in the law, but so that we can find salvation in the one who comes to fulfill the law. And that's what he's saying in verse 17, that this person is Jesus. It was added for the sake of transgressions into the sea to whom the promise was made would come. The, the law was fulfilled in Christ Jesus when Christ came and he lived a perfect life and he died the death that we deserved. The law was fulfilled in him on the cross and through his resurrection. And now the people of God do not seek to obey the law in order to find acceptance from God, but they believe in Christ Jesus who perfectly obeyed the law so that his perfect record becomes ours and our sinful record becomes his and we are declared right by God. We are his children and we can live from what Christ did, not what we feel that we have to do to find God's pleasure. Verse 18, verse 20. Verse 19, excuse me, he goes on and says, the law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. And here I believe the angels that he is talking about is simply in Deuteronomy, there's a reference to angels being present with the mediator, with Moses, as he brought the law to God's people. Now, a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. Uh, uh, this wasn't just for Moses, but this was for Moses and his people from this, this one God. Verse 21, is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. So what he's trying to say is, listen, the law in itself is not evil. It's not bad. Psalm 19 says the law is good. The law brings light to the eyes. The law is a good thing. 
what he wants to get them to see, but the law could not give life. The law itself does not save. It does not save. He goes on to say, then righteousness will certainly be on the basis of the law. If it did save, then we could find our righteousness in it, but it does not save. I mean, even thinking about New Testament Christians, think about the greatest commandment. What's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as what? Y'all can talk back to me. Don't be scarred. As what? As yourself. Now, if we just take those two simple commandments, we say, yes, so much better than 634 commandments in the Old Testament. But listen, I don't care how hard I try in and of myself and my own ability, I can't do those things. Can I just be real? Like there's no moment in my life where I've probably loved God with my entire being. And as much as I want to love my neighbor as myself, and I know this may sound bad, I don't. And if you're honest with yourself, you don't either. You don't pay more attention to somebody else than you do yourself. It's impossible. We strive to. We strive to humbly serve others as Christ has served us, but we cannot do it perfectly. And if we believe that what makes us right is our ability to love God with our whole being and to love our neighbor exactly how we love ourselves. Man, that is going to be a weight. And that's why Paul said earlier in Galatians that the law was a, was a slave master. It beat him into the ground. And so two things happen when you believe that you can do those things perfectly. Either you fail over and over and then you just end up giving up and you just live a life of just like hopelessness because you know you can't do it. Or two, you deceive yourselves and you make yourself think that you are living perfectly and you judge other people because the perfection that you made up is the perfection that you can manage and keep. And Paul is saying Jesus has come, the seed has come to free us. From the dominion of the law, which is good, but which becomes a slave master and to give us life. By setting our attention not on 634 uh, particular laws, but on one person who living, he loved me, dying, he saved me, buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified and freed me forever. And one day he's coming back, that glorious day. He says, believe and live in that promise. Receive your inheritance by placing your faith in that person. Not in your ability or your identity in other areas. Verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Christ. To those who believe, we'll read that again. But the scripture, the law, imprisoned everything under sin's power. It imprisoned us so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Christ. Listen, how do we know the law didn't, wasn't meant to save us? How do we know? Because God set up a system to save through the tabernacle and through the sacrifices. The system was set up. Not to save, but to point us to salvation, that salvation was going to come through a sacrifice, that someone was going to die on our behalf. So the New Testament is about Jesus Christ comes. John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who has come to take away what? The sins of the world. Everything was pointing to him. What do we do with this text? Three things. First thing we do with this text 
is this. We marvel at the unity of the word of God. Marvel at the unity of the word of God. Know how many conversations I've had with people through the years, which makes sense if you are not a student of God's word and if you hadn't been been taught and set under the word from someone who who, um, has. A lot of people draw the the conclusion that the Bible is full of contradictions that the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New. The God of the Old Testament is barbaric and mean. The God of the New Testament is loving and merciful. That there is no, no unity in the scriptures that is two completely different books and that is full of contradictions. And here's what Paul is saying in a way that he's holding this word, in a way that he's teaching this word. He's saying, yo, Galatians, it all fits together. The problem isn't what God has written. The problem is with our understanding. The promises of Abraham and the law, they work together. The promises of Abraham remind us that salvation is by faith and faith alone and Christ alone. The law reminds us that we cannot perform our way to God, that there are not five pillars and five things that we can do every uh, through our lifetime to make us right with God. That there's not enough sacrifices and atonement. That there's there's not enough morality that one person can have to make us right with God. What makes us right with God is belief in Christ Jesus. It's scandalous. It goes against our human nature. It seems like it's not right. But listen, it is good news. Marvel at the unity of God's word. And if someone tells you different you run from them. Someone tells you the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New. You, you gently correct them and you abandon what they're teaching. If someone tells you to unhitch yourself from the Old Testament, somebody say run. One person said it, hey man, I got a million dollars in the back for you. <laughs> Just joking. Second, don't merely marvel at the word. Engage it and take God's word seriously. Real quick, Paul engages this Galatian church, churches who are divided. They are divided. Uh, uh, all that the Spirit has done is becoming untangled because of false teaching. And what's Paul's a method to bring unity? It's not human philosophy. It's not browbeating them, even though he does call them foolish and use some hard language. He does it in love. It's to take them to the word and to show them that all that they need for life and godliness is found in the book. And I quickly want to encourage you as we look at this text to see that the answer for your dilemma and your undividedness and division and brokenness is not found out there. It's found in here. And it's not just found in the pages of scripture, but it's found in the person who allowed scripture to be written. The person who is the Logos, the word of God, Jesus Christ. Because sometimes we think we've grown. We get to a place we think we're grown. Where the Bible once was central into our life and what we looked to and hid in our hearts so that we wouldn't sin against God, we then run to other means to find what we think is wholeness. Like taking time to read my Bible and do devotions, that's, that's when I was a, a babe in Christ. Taking the word and washing, not weaponizing, washing 
my, my spouse with the word, water of the word, washing my friend with the water of the word, pointing them to a chapter and verse. For some of y'all, it's become uncool. But notice how Paul addresses the church of Galatia. It's about digging in the scriptures. And what is he doing as he's reading the scripture? He's reading it with a Christocentrism. He's reading it with Christ in mind. He's saying every verse, every chapter, every paragraph whispers his name. Third, and I just want to encourage you. Listen, I know life is heavy. I know there's a lot of questions that you're asking yourself. I know there's a lot of insecurities and and things that you wish that you had. And that often you, you wonder if God sees you, knows you, and loves you. But I just want to encourage you to, like Abraham, in the midst of the doubt, in the midst of the confusion, trust in the promises of God. Believe that God is for you because he said he's for you. Believe that God loves you because over 2,000 years ago, he made the ultimate sacrifice for you. Don't allow the latest fads or feelings to, to determine whether or not you're God's child. Hear God say to you over and over, day after day, that my love for you is not based upon your ability to be perfect. My love for you is based upon my son's finished work and what he did for you on the cross. Hear God say, my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. I love you, and not only do I love you, but I've empowered you through the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh, not so that you can be accepted by God, but from acceptance by me. All the promises of God are yes and amen. Jesus Christ is coming back again. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He has a plan for you that he laid in motion before the foundation of the world, and it has been sealed with the Spirit. It has been made in a covenant of blood through Jesus Christ. And here's what amazes me, this immutable, which means unchangeable, this uh, eternal God, This merciful God, this perfect God, this sinless God, this holy God, this this big God allowed his son to put on human flesh, to put on frailty, to to put on brokenness, to, to put on grief and sorrow, to be tempted in every way that you are. He made a covenant and perfectly kept the covenant, yet he died as one who had broken the covenant. He became a curse for you so that you might be children of God. God loves you. He says, take off your cloak of the law, put on your cloak of grace, look to me and live a life empowered by the Spirit and watch me work. And every Sunday when we gather, we remember that we serve a a promise-making, promise-keeping God by taking communion. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, said, this is my body broken for you. 
In the same way he took a cup and said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood shed for you, Christian. Every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're proclaiming the faithfulness of God. You're preaching Christ's death and resurrection. Here at Sojourner, we take a piece of bread. We dip it in wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine, whatever your conscience permits. If you're not a Christian, we're going to ask you to refrain from taking this meal. But I really want to encourage you to rethink your thinking. If you see God as this angry father who produces children who are wrathful and hateful and uptight, um, then number one, I'm sorry if that's been your experience of Christians. Be patient with us. But number two, that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is one who entered into human suffering. He's the one who says salvation does not come from your performance, but it comes from my performance for you. And he's the one who says, I am a loving father who has open arms and who's ready to give you true joy and true transformation. And Jesus is saying to you today, come to me. Find hope, find life, find peace by faith. If you want to respond to that message today or you have questions, we're going to have some pastors right here in the prayer chapel afterwards. There's no pressure. Um, They're going to be some of the kindest people you ever meet. And if they're not, you come and you tell me. (laughs) Uh, If you're a Christian, we also have an opportunity for you to pray with some people, your brothers and sisters in Christ, who they're eager to pray with you. And walking in there is not like a black cloud over you where you walk out. Everybody's like, oh, what's going on in there? It's an invitation for you to hear the voice of your brother and sister in Christ remind you of Christ's love. Let's pray.